Today we start a new series in Ephesians. And so uh, I have some videos to help you understand, hopefully. Um, let's start out with this one. moments. Some moments destroy us as tragedy hits. Some moments shape our ideals and values as we are creatures of influence. Other moments leave deep scars that are hard to erase. But then there are those moments that unite us, a shared moment in time that connects us together to create a bond that will last a lifetime. One such moment was when the God of the universe entered humanity in the form of Jesus Christ. From that moment, all who would follow him would be united, tied together by an instant in time. Then came his death. A moment in time, although horrific, united us to our Saviour. Then the most glorious moment of all, a moment that defines us and shapes our lives and churches. This moment was Jesus' resurrection. As we allow the divine moments of history affect our today, we start to see the common factor. Jesus came to unite man to God and man to man. Relationships replace religion. The body of Christ functions without tension. Love for others replaces selfishness. Husbands love wives correctly. Wives come alongside passionately. Children relate to parents honorably. Employees serve obediently. Employers relate with godly fear. When unity flows, the dominion of Satan crumbles. Offences are brought to nothing, and God's people live under his authority and identity. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, and the power of God's word all unite to secure our destiny as people redeemed by Jesus and tied together for a mission of eternal significance. The moment Jesus entered, division and distance fled. The gap was bridged and the new age of unity established. As you know, we've gone through Judges, which is the spiral down, down, down. And some of you are wondering how far it could go before we got to the bottom. And then we covered how, uh, who Jesus Christ was, all his I am's. 
And now we are going to go to the next step and go through Ephesians in building that up. How do we come from that bottom, who Jesus Christ is, and how he's taken us as a church, and how it should look. And so this semester, that's what we'll be covering, the book of Ephesians. And um, so we'll start today with a whole of two verses. Before we get into it, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us down there where it's just the bottom. But you have sent your Son and have concern for us. And then teach us how to take it the next step. So that we as a church can become your church, your kingdom here on earth. So Father, give me the words that would help encourage and build today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The first two verses read this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we'll be covering today. Um, how about if we get started? It starts out Paul. He's trying to tell who, who wrote it. And um, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I don't, I don't know if you've gone through the scriptures to see the, the apostles, but uh, I put the list up there for you. How many see Paul up there? Come on. Where's your reading skills? Not there. Not there. <laughs> Not in those lists. So how does he say that he's an apostle? Well, um, so let's, let's look at his life a little bit here. Here's the timeline that we're kind of, we kind of think where he's at. He was born an, an Israelite. I think his mother was Jewish and his father was a Roman. And uh, he was tribe of Benjamin, um, which should be significant to you after we went through Judges, I hope. Um, but he was a Roman citizen, Tarsus. Um, he grew up there. He got an education in Tarsus, probably one of the best educations he could. He was one of those brilliant students, so he got sent off to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Gamaliel was the top person to go see, to get the next step in his education. And so he got this great Jewish education also. And then with that, he wanted to change the world. And in changing the world, he went and said, hey, I'm going to prosecute the Christians. That's how I'm going to change the world. You know how young people are. They always want to change the world, right? And so he got into that. God had a different um, 
And so he watched Stephen get stoned, comes over here, and he comes to a conversion, finds Christ, changes his life, his direction, and where he wants to go. Uh, he begins preaching in the synagogue. Of course, uh, he's, he's a radical, uh, and they get him out. Uh, he goes to Jerusalem. They don't want to see him. He's been torturing Christians. And, um, and so then he, um, they plot to kill him. The church says, hey, you got to, you got to get out of here. And so they, they um, have him go to Arabia for three years. And at that point is when Paul had his time with Christ alone. And that's where he pins that he became an apostle. Um, let me give you a, a little bit of a, a timeline so that you can kind of see it for those who are more visually um, inclined. And then the church uh, began, and then Antioch becomes the center of the movement, not Jerusalem. They're kicked out of Jerusalem. And then the Apostle Paul goes on a missionary journey. He's sent from the church of Antioch, and that's his first journey. goes into southern Turkey. His second journey, he goes back and sees those churches, and then Paul starts his uh, third journey. And on his third journey, he is raising support for the poor in Jerusalem. He goes back to the original churches, goes to Ephesus, he spends two years in Ephesus, he writes a letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Then he goes back to Macedonia, which is the area that Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica are in. He writes a, a second letter to the Corinthians from Philippi, that's 2 Corinthians. Then he travels down from Macedonia, travels back uh, to Corinth, and then he stays a good while uh, in Corinth. While he's in Corinth, this is all about in Acts 20, he writes the letter to the church in Rome. Then he leaves uh, Corinth, goes back to Macedonia, goes to Philippi again. This will be his last time in Philippi. Goes back to uh, the coast and then to Jerusalem where he's arrested. Paul's arrested and he spends two years in a jail in Caesarea along uh, the ocean. And then because he's a Roman citizen, he appeals uh, to the emperor. And after those two years, he then travels in shipwrecked on his way to Rome, goes to Rome, and he is under a kind of a house arrest while he is in Rome. While he's in Rome, he writes what we call the prison letters, the prison epistles. And Philippians is one of those. While he's in Rome, in a jail, he's writing to the people at Philippi. He's also writing to the, uh, the Ephesians at that point. Now, what's an apostle? An apostle is um, one sent from or sent forth, a messenger, a delegate, 
there's kind of two ways of using this. It's it's an individual sent to an accomplish a particular task. Usually it's to start something. Okay? But the other way, the second way that seems um, that Paul is trying to use this is it's Apostle of Jesus Christ who Jesus selected and, and sent as his representative or ambassador. And so you say, well, he really wasn't one of the disciples the original disciples. And he says, no, I got it straight from, I got it straight from Jesus. In Galatians, he writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He goes on, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before, before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. So he's trying to say, I am that apostle. I have been called by God. What I am telling you is coming from God directly. move on to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus what's holy who are these holy people saints some people some translations say um, those it's separated from the mundane it's something that's separated for God it's separated to God that's a holy thing. It's interesting that he's clearly talking not to a whole generation. He is talking specifically to those who uh, are believers. Um, other titles that sometimes Paul would use is the called, the faithful, the elect. And so he's speaking to those specifically. Now, it's interesting in the original, the most farthest back we can go, scripts in Ephesus is not in there. So you, you would read it to God's holy people, um, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, why isn't Ephesus in there? But traditionally, it was known as an epistle, the Ephesus epistle. And so this letter, and so we're, we're trying to figure out wh where's that come from? More than likely, it was a it was a letter that Paul wrote from prison, delivered to the churches. Someone went and actually read it to the churches. It's to be read out loud to the churches, and the the copy that got most famous was the one that was probably in Ephesus, and um, so it was a letter that he generally wrote to everyone. It's 
interesting because most of his writings is about being saved and how you come to Christ. But Ephesus is more um, a later thought pattern, it seems. He's thinking not how do you come to Christ, but how does this church, this movement that he started, actually grow? And so this letter is, is a general letter to the churches to help them grow. Now, why would it be Ephesus? Because probably these were letters to Asia Minor, and Ephesus was kind of the big city. It would be like saying, um, writing a letter to the churches in Dhaka. Well, is that Mirpur? Is that, you understand? It's, it's Ephesus. It's all those churches that, that were there. Now, as you might have seen, he spent, um, he spent two years in Ephesus. So he would know the people. And that's why it's kind of odd that there's no greetings to this person or that person, because he would have been very familiar with that church. And that's why we consider it one that was probably spread to all the churches in the whole area, uh, is why we, we look at it that way. Um, so let's look at, I want to give you a picture of Ephesus. And I, I can tell you that my words would be like nothing. I've never been there, right? So I'm going to give you uh, a video so that you can kind of interact and, and understand how this, this large city was a, was a main area uh, for that time. Okay? Well, I've reached the western end of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and I'm among the ruins of an ancient city called Ephesus and it boasts some of the most extensive Roman ruins you can see in the entire world. Let's go take a look at some. Ephesus was perhaps the most important city in Asia Minor. Not only was it an endpoint for the Royal Road that we looked at in the Smyrna episode of Drive Through History, but it was a powerful and influential port city on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Its history mirrors that of many other cities in Eastern Asia Minor. Founded as an ancient Greek settlement, came under Persian rule, conquered by Alexander the Great, traded hands a few more times, until it underwent massive city improvements when the Romans finally took over. By the time of the Roman Republic, Ephesus was firmly established as the capital of Asia Minor. And for me, walking around its ruins, it was impossible to miss how great this city was at one time. And even though it's halfway around the world, the city had features and a layout that made me feel right at home. Now take this city gate, for instance. Now in America, you're not going to see anything like this except at maybe a Las Vegas hotel. But the street that came through here met with other streets of the ancient city here at Ephesus and provided a grid, a patchwork, upon which many of our modern cities are developed today. Now instead of letting the street just sort of wander to where the shops and the houses were already built, the Romans devised a system of putting two main boulevards at a 90 degree angle and cut the side streets off of those, creating that city grid. Now that seems pretty basic to us, but back in the day it was pretty genius civil engineering. And it made travel to places the Ephesians wanted to go pretty easy. Places like the theater! The Greeks and Romans both put a huge priority 
on public entertainment. Now, when the Greeks began writing plays, they originally started out as small-scale private events. But by the time ancient Ephesus reached full bloom under the Roman Empire, people liked their entertainment big. The Ephesian Amphitheater was once the largest in the world, which is no surprise because entertainment was such a regular part of the Romans, and specifically the Ephesians' lives. Now, there's no PA system needed here. Not only are the acoustics already incredible, but at one time, the breeze from the bay, which used to lay just to the west of the theater, would help carry the sound all the way up to the cheap seats. But it wasn't exactly Shakespeare they were enjoying. Wild beast fights, often involving humans, also took place here. Now, believe it or not, this gargantuan Ephesian amphitheater seats more than 24,000 people. Now, that's bigger than most American NHL hockey stadiums. Now, transfer all the noise and excitement of a crowd watching a Stanley Cup playoff game to an Ephesian crowd watching the Gladiators or a Greek play or even a public trial. It was the ultimate in entertainment. But for those Ephesians who wanted to work out their bodies and not just sit and watch a play, Ephesus offered the gymnasium. Now, this old field, which was once the gymnasium, right next to the ancient Ephesian amphitheater, is now nothing more than just a storage place for a bunch of chunks of Ephesian debris. But at one time, this was the destination spot for many a Roman gentleman who wanted to get his body pampered, worked out, massaged, and bathed in his choice of hot, cold, or tepid baths. Today, we add a little motion to the water and call it a whirlpool, but the effect is still the same. Now, the Romans weren't the first to sculpt their bodies into chiseled masses of muscle, but they definitely took the idea of workouts to new heights or should I say weights. Most Roman cities had a gymnasium of some sort. Some were big, like the one we saw in Sardis, but others were more modest. Nearly all of them had an adjacent bathing facility, which often had a warm room, a tepidarium, and a cold room, a frigidarium, for the purposes of bathing after exercise. But what would the exercise consist of? Workouts haven't changed much over the millennia. They were into weightlifting, wrestling, running, swimming, and ball playing. So this is where you needed to go if you wanted to get your body worked out and looking its best. And speaking of needing to go, now when's the last time you used a public restroom made entirely of marble? Now we take for granted the availability of public facilities in America, but we probably have the ancient Romans to thank for that one. Everything from underground sewage systems underneath a lot of Ephesian homes to constantly running water underneath these public privies for perpetual flushing. Even this channel of cold, fresh water right here in front of your feet that people used to wash themselves with when they were done. This particular facility featured 12 uh, seats along each wall, so it could accommodate up to 36 people at one time, which is probably why this thing was open air, if you catch my uh, drift. Now this public facility had an open air section for ventilation. They also had an outside water fountain to wash your hands with, even a man standing there sometimes with towels or optional perfume. I mean, if you were an ancient Roman, you had everything you wanted out of a public facility, except maybe privacy. Having such a lack of privacy would have made me, well, flushed, so to speak. But we can be thankful that the Romans invented a proper way of the disposal of human waste. They didn't know it at the time, but their engineering helped prevent widespread outbreaks of diseases such as cholera and typhoid. It is generally agreed that the reduction of disease by the development of sewage systems and plumbing has been a major accomplishment in human civilization. 
And for people like me, with so-called germ, quote, issues, shall we say, it's what makes life itself bearable on this planet. Not to overstate it or anything. Maybe a little bit more information than you wanted. <laughs> but you can see that the city was a great city. It had all kinds of things that we, um, you know, we wouldn't imagine uh, in, in those days. And so when Paul is writing to them, he, he's writing to these people in the city that, that gather. He's writing to churches that have gone from that city that have... Uh, ministries that have have kept going because of his ministry there, and so he's he's wanting to them to um, understand how this church is going to grow, how it's going to conquer the world for God's kingdom, and so he goes on to say to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in. Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is is an identity. I, I don't know about you, but it, when you meet somebody, they give you a little bit about who they are, their identity. Okay? Now, I, I could, when I greet somebody, you know, like, I, I'm a Barca fan. Okay? Barcelona fan. So this week I would be very sad. They lost, okay? I'd be upset about their new coach or whatever, manager, or, you know, but that would be, you You would hear all about Barcelona, right? If that's my identity, who I, who I major in, who, who I think about, what I associate with, it's my identity of who I am. And Paul here is saying your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. So when somebody gets to know you, the first thing they're going to get to know you about is about your belief in Jesus Christ. About who you are and what Christ makes you. That forgiveness that he has done so that you can live a life of peace, a life that is meaningful. And, and so he's trying to get people to idea. He, he understands that these people are faithful because their identity is Jesus Christ. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, most of the, the Jews would have understood Christ, the word Christ is for Messiah. The one who God said He would send that would bind that relationship again between God and man. But for most of the Gentiles and the Ephesians, it was more of just a saying. It was more of a title, a name, Christ Jesus. Um, so it's interesting the difference in how we would look at that that term, Christ. And he goes on to chap, uh, verse 2. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're rooted 
in Jesus Christ. That is who we are because he died, he rose, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And that's who we claim. That's who our identity is because of who he is. That becomes who we become and who we are. We're rooted in that. But he starts out with grace. What's grace? Now I know, I always tease my boys. Grace is... Patience is a virtue. Virtue is a grace. And grace is... A girl with a pretty face. Right? It's an unmerited favor, actually. Right? But... I always played with them on that one. It is something we don't deserve. It is God giving us what we don't deserve. And that's what grace is. And so he he says, grace to you. You have gotten salvation, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And so he wishes them that grace. It's not deserved, but they have it. And he says, and peace to you. The peace comes from what um, the Jewish would say, shalom. And it's, it's not just a kind of like, oh, it's nice, everything's nice. Shalom goes a lot deeper. It's a completeness. It's a soundness. It's... It's that well-being and security. Shalom, to wish someone shalom goes to the root of, of who we are. And it's not just a, you know, kind of a one thing, but it's the complete of who we are. It completes us. It makes us sound. It, it, that well-being that we want, He wishes upon us that security that we long for to know that everything is okay. That's shalom. And it's only Christ that can give us that grace and peace. It's only through Him. It's not through any other way. And that's why Paul, right at the beginning of this letter, wishes that for his audience, the faithful, those who are set apart in Christ. Let me try to kind of um, illustrate grace and peace to you. Uh, I might not do well, but let me try, okay? All right. Come along with me. San Francisco uh, has this bay back here and and they kind of have this like mile right right there where if you could cross it it would be really easy to get here if not you either have to go all the way around or you take a ferry that goes there and so in 1921 they decided hey let's build a bridge right um, at that point, 
about two million cars were going over by ferry. Um, the South Pacific Railroad Company was very happy to take them on their ferry. They were making a lot of money, okay? And so when it came this time that they said, oh, let's build a bridge there. Um, the South Pacific Railroad Company filed over 2,500 lawsuits to stop them. I mean, they were making good money, right? They didn't want this bridge. It was going to be dangerous. It was horrid. Let's not do that, right? Um, the Department of War at that time, they, they had objections because they had warships back here. And if somebody bombed that little place, then they couldn't get their warships out. So they had some objections also. So it wasn't until, and then of course, the crash of 1929, they couldn't get the finances to do it. And so it wasn't until 1933 before they actually started building this bridge. Now, The, they made these two towers. It is, it is the longest span. At that point, it was the longest span for um, a hanging bridge. And they made these towers. Um, oh, the other thing is the depth here is 130 meters deep. And the water is all, always flowing. It's not stable. It's just, a, you know, because all that water is coming in from the mountains going out to the ocean. And so it, there's always a fast-flowing water. They, um, so they had to put these towers up right here and uh, to get the cables. And so those towers are 227 meters high. At the top of those towers, there's winds about 75 kilometers per hour. If, uh, if a man fell from this height, by the time he reaches the water, he's going about 125 kilometers per hour. I don't know about you, but hitting the water at 125 kilometers per hour is usually fatal. Let's just put it that way. A very, very dangerous way that's going to, I mean, there's going to be deaths. And so the construction company decided um, in their statistics that for every million dollars they spent, they would lose one life. They just put it out there. They were going to spend $33 million. They were going to lose 33 people to accidents like this. And after the first one, people kind of got upset. They didn't like that. That this was a pretty dangerous thing that was going to happen. And so um, here's the cables that they finally got up. When they got up, uh, just in case you want to know, there's enough cable there to go around the world eight times. That's how much cable is there. All right? If you just take the strand and go around. Um, so they have this problem of safety. How do you get these men to
to build this bridge and not fall into the water and kill themselves. So they came up with this safety net. Okay? It cost them a lot of money. But of the 30 men that did fall, 19 were saved. 19. Another picture so you can see that safety net at work as they're building. I think I have one more. Oh, there's the bridge. Um, 19 saved. You see, Paul says, I wish you grace and peace for those who are faithful. The grace of God has that net to catch you. And because of that, you can have peace as you walk along those beams that if the wind does push you over, you're going to be caught because of God's grace. Not that you deserve it, especially if you do something stupid while you're working on a bridge, but because of God's grace, there's that net to catch you and you can have peace about it. Because they made that net, they actually finished the project not, well, it was on time. It was actually before they were supposed to finish it. And before they made that net, they were going behind because of accidents and people um, being more cautious. And so that net actually helped them to be able to do that. The interesting thing to me is that they spent $33 million to build this. Right now, they are retrofitting it with a suicide net because of so many people jumping. <coughs> they have spent more to prevent people from suicide from this bridge than they did to build it. give those people the grace so that they can live. Grace and peace to those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. May you have that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do some stupid things. And yet, you are gracious and have those nets there for us. You've sent your Son to die for our sins that we might have a relationship with you again. Thank you for that grace that you give. Thank you for the peace that it brings to us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
worship our Lord with our tithes and offerings. May I have two volunteers? Yes. blessings that you showered upon our lives. Out of the abundance that you've given, Lord, we brought a portion of it into your presence through our tithes and offerings. Father, we commit them to your hands. Bless them. And Lord, uh, use them for the expansion of your kingdom. Bless every hand that has given. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Be with us even as we go. In Jesus' name I pray. to be consoled as to 
May the grace God extends to you be your safety net this week. May your heart be full of peace as you rely on the safety net of grace. May you be faithful in what God has called you to as you look to Him. Amen. Go in peace.